Okay. Thanks for being here. It's hot in Woodstock. But it's hot in Philly, Ellen. Oh, my. Yes, we are now living in a um, subtropical rainforest climate, I think. Um, and uh, I'm glad I'm in a cool room indoors right now. So thanks for coming. We're going to continue with our theme for this month of um, spiritual preparation for the high holidays. And the last couple of weeks, we looked at those gematrias, those beautiful um, chants, beautiful chants finds from the Torah that help guide me into the new year. This year, I want this week. I want to start talking with you about um, the fact that this Rosh Hashanah we are entering a Shemitah year. Um, Shemitah means we're going to talk about it, but every seventh year in the Jewish calendar is called a sabbatical year. That's where the term sabbatical comes from. It's known in some places in the Torah as Shabbat, Shabbaton, a Shabbat of, that is a whole year rather than the seventh day being the Shabbat on the weekly daily cycle, the seventh year. And it's also called the year of Shemitah, which means in Hebrew, to let drop or to release. And I wrote about this a few weeks ago. This might, this might be ringing some bells for you. And I wanted to have a chance to discuss it at greater length with us today. Because um, uh, in ancient Israel, and we'll look at the sources, the sabbatical year was observed. And we're gonna look, we're gonna talk about what that meant in ancient Israel by looking at the sources. It was an agricultural-based cycle. Every seventh year, you were to let the land rest. And in addition, you were to release debts. In other words, drop everything. All the things that you think you're owed or that are yours or that you feel you're, you have coming to you, you let them go. And everything resets in the seventh year in that way. The, the sabbatical year was practiced in ancient Israel because agriculture was the main driver of the economy. And then once the Roman Empire kind of took over the area and life became much more um, um, com commercial and cosmopolitan, it became much harder to maintain a sabbatical cycle when your economy was tied into a much larger economy, if you know what I mean. I mean, if your exports of olive oil and wine were what drove your economy now, it, wasn't no, it was no longer a subsistence economy. Um, the sabbatical year became harder and harder to observe. And then finally, of course, when we were exiled from the land and lost our, lost our uh, um, communal coherence in the land, the sabbatical year became a memory. In modern, the modern era, the sabbatical year was reinstituted by early Zionists. And so we've been counting again every seven years since the late 19th century. And it's that count that 
we are following, that the entire Jewish world is following. Um, in Israel, uh, the Orthodox observe aspects of the sabbatical year. Um, if you live in Israel this coming year, you will look for produce in the store that is marked that it was not harvested in the land of Israel. You know, that this, that this food is not so, but it's again, it's very complicated because of the international economy. All of which is to say that in our moment of environmental, expanding environmental concerns and consciousness, approaching this idea of a year of letting go takes on a whole new resonance that is not to be missed in my opinion. And I wanna propose that this word Shemitah, which means to let drop or to release, can also apply, especially as we go into a new year, to our own letting go, right? In addition to economic and agricultural, ecological um, letting go, what about our own internal letting go of a sense of control or ownership? as a spiritual exercise that is actually quite liberating and that actually releases us to feel connected to each other and the world in a whole much, whole more beautiful way than one in which we, we, we act like we're in charge. Um, so I actually wanna look at this this week and maybe next week, let's just see where we get to, um, as a direction because we are entering the seventh year now in the agreed upon counting in the Jewish world. Let's take, make the most of that and uh, look at it from an economic, societal, ecological, and personal level. Uh, sound good, everybody? Um, so that's what I wanted to uh, focus on today. So remember, feel free anytime to type your comments into the chat. I'm going to begin now by showing you the three places in Torah where this, this practice is described and the context in which it's described and how it's different in each of those three. So let me share my screen. Start with the first one. a moment. I want the exodus. There we go. And I want to move this over here on my little laptop. I figured out how to fit everything. Okay. The first time. Oh, Joan says, well, we see how the Parsha of the week relates to this. Well, the Parsha of this week um, relates to it obliquely. Um, but not specifically. So no, it's not a great connection. Um, I'm more, I decided to do this because we're entering a sabbatical year and that's the connection that I made, not specifically to the portion of the week. Um, okay, Exodus chapter 23, verse 10. Hope you all can see that. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But in the seventh year, 
Tishmetena. Okay, those of you who know a little Hebrew, hear the word Shemitah. Tishmetena, that Shin Memtet is the root. That means to let go or to drop or to let rest. So in the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow. And while you're letting it rest and lying fallow, let the needy among your people eat of it. And what they leave, let the wild beasts eat. You shall do the same with your vineyards and your olive groves. Now, from our perspective, where we own land, and it's our land, What a ridiculous thing to expect us to do, right? It's just ridiculous. It's our land. It's how we make our living, right? But the idea of ownership of land is a particular cultural construct. And a, we're aware, I'll certainly editorialize, an incredibly destructive one, it turns out. Because it... it that idea of land ownership by human beings gives us the, um, the license to extract everything we want from that land as if it's ours. In our, in our current day of growing ecological awareness and the understanding of life as a cis-complex system and the earth not as something inert or inanimate, I shouldn't say inert, but inanimate without... Um, personhood that's just theirs for our to make us to make use of all of that that represents capitalism um has brought us to the edge of destruction right we're we're right there that is not the way all peoples in the world view their relationship to the land we know that native american cultures in our in our land uh don't Consider the land something that you own. It's not even a concept that, that was, was part of their conceptual universe when the white man first showed up. But what I want to point out to you, and again, some of you are deeply familiar with this already, is that in ancient Israel, there was also no concept of land ownership. The earth is the Lord's and all that dwells therein. Right? That's it. The earth isn't ours. We belong to the earth. We belong to the creator. The, the idea of owning the earth is an absurdity. Um, and more than that, sacrilege. Right? It's sacrilege uh, to consider as such. And so I am so locked in just because I grew up, grew up in this time and place to the idea that we own our property, that it's very hard to wrap our mind around this. But the Torah has a completely different conceptual framework for our relationship to the earth. Therefore, if you have an entire society that has no difficulty um, with, with the idea that the land is not ours, in fact, as we'll see in Leviticus 25, which is the next place where we hear about this, um, that what we own when we own land is the produce. That's ours to enjoy. Um, 
And then it's our job, as you know, as it's repeated over and over in the Torah, to share it with the orphan, the stranger, the widow, the needy. It's our job to take a tenth of it and tithe it for the upkeep of the religious center and to give to God. It's up to us to take the first fruits of our flock and of our field and bring it to the altar and thank God for it. Right? That's just how it works. The land's not ours. The produce is ours. But the produce is only ours to share and distribute in a way that allows the world to keep working. So this is the idea of this, this radical idea of that for a year, you, the entire society gives the land a Sabbath. And in that time, we, uh, what's the word? Um, we um, give up ownership of everything. And when it says the wild, the needy can, the needy can go into your fields and whatever's growing, they can take, but even the wild beasts. So as uh, Rabbi David Seidenberg writes about beautifully about this, I learned a lot from uh, Rabbi Seidenberg. By saying the wild beasts can come into your field, you are really giving the land back. You're, you're just, you're letting it go. And you are giving up ownership and giving up control completely so that the land can rest and so that our illusions of being in charge can be reset. Um, can you imagine a whole society doing that? But they did. They did this in ancient Israel. Right after this, it says, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor. So now the six-year and seven-year cycle and the six-day and seventh-day cycle are, are put together. So you can see, so that you don't even have to guess at the connection between them. Because on the seventh day, you shall also cease from labor in order, why? That your ox and your ass may rest. And that your bondman, meaning your indentured servant, and the stranger who doesn't have a land holding and relies as a day laborer may be refreshed. It's so amazing. Enough fish refreshed. All the, okay, I think that line speaks for itself. And just to understand more about context, listen to the verses that preceded this um, section in verse 10, 11, and 12 about how to treat the land. This is one of my favorite passages. You must not carry false rumors. You shall not join hands with the guilty to act as a malicious witness. You shall not side with the mighty to do wrong. You shall not give perverse testimony in a dispute so as to pervert it in favor of the mighty. Nor shall you show deference to a poor man in his dispute. When you encounter your ox's ass 
or uh, your enemy's ox or ass wandering, you must take it back to him. When you see the ass of your enemy lying under its burden and would refrain from raising it, you must nevertheless raise it with him. You shall not subvert the rights of your needy in their disputes. Keep far from a false charge. Do not bring death on those who are innocent and in the right, for I will not acquit the wrongdoer. Do not take bribes, for bribes blind the clear-sighted and upset the pleas of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. And in that flow of profound teachings about justice, it says, six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but in the seventh you shall let it rest and lay fallow. So these days we talk about, in, in many circles that I, that I read about, we talk about the need to understand social justice movements and environmental justice movements as overlapping and intertwined, right? Who lived by the Love Canal? They were poor black people, right? It's like, where can you desecrate the earth? Well, where the poor people are, they can't, they're never gonna, you know, they don't have any, they can't sue you, they can't even hire a lawyer. Right. So the desecration of the earth and the denigration of other peoples are all the same. And the Torah makes that clear in joining them together. You don't own the earth. And now you'll find out, we'll find out in the next sources, that in the uh, seventh year, this is an agricultural instruction. But in Deuteronomy, it'll tell us that in the seventh year, you forgive debts and you let your indentured servant go free. That's where the idea of a six years of indentured comes from, from the Torah. So let's look at the next source. Let's look at the De De Deuteronomy source. So here we are in Deuteronomy chapter 15. And Miketz Sheva Shanim Taase Shmita. Every seventh year, you shall practice remission of debts. So the same word is related to letting the land, uh, releasing your grip on the land, as it is releasing your grip on other people. Isn't that beautiful? Same year, same function. Whether it's other human beings, where it's economic uh, control or uh, any other kind of control. And this shall be the nature of this letting go. Every creditor shall remit the due that he claims from his fellow. In other words, that's, I don't, let's talk plain English. If they owe you something, you forgive it. You shall not dun your fellow or kinsman. You can't charge interest on the loan. It's over. Um, now, in the next verse, it says, you may charge interest to the foreigner, but you must remit whatever is due from your kin. That is to say that the laws of the Torah applied to the children of Israel. They were creating their own utopian ideals and the idea of um 
extending that to some universal humanity doesn't exist in that time. Does that make sense, everybody? So this is about if you're a citizen of this group, these laws pertain to you. It doesn't say you should like uh, um, gouge the foreigner, right? It's saying that in this case, these laws are about the Israelites. And it goes on to say, oh, Deborah says, and what if we let go of believing that other people owe us something? Oh, yes, hold on to that. I want to get there. No, let's go there now. This is beautiful. I'm going to stop sharing for me. Thank you, Deborah. Let's, let's jump right to that awareness. You owe me. You know, it's like I'm keeping, ta- I'm keeping a tab keeping a list of who owes me. And yes, in daily economy, the world wouldn't work if we couldn't function that way. Um, But I've been thinking on this emotional relational level does anybody owe me anything what what if i stop keeping a ledger of how much i did for someone and what they did for me what if i understood myself as part of a virtuous system And that whatever I pay forward, it's going to come back to me some other way. And all I am is a conduit of contributing. Whole different idea, which when I talk to you, I'm talking to myself. Remember, I'm just like, I process this out loud. A whole different idea of belonging to an open system as opposed to a closed transaction. I think this is a key to being able to forgive. Um, Forgive debts. It's the word. We forgive the debts. Or what else can we forgive if we can reach this level of awareness? Um, Let's see. Sylvia, let's take this little um, side, side journey. Is it true that you can never charge interest to other Jewish people? That is the Jewish law. When the Christians, here's a, this is a little side journey of 2,000 years of history. When the early Jewish Christians um, formed the, the early church, they followed this law. And they would not charge interest to each other. When the centuries passed and the church became the Holy Roman Empire, and they still had this on the books, they needed someone to be able to charge interest. Because you can't run an economy without, uh, without someone providing capital, right? And there's no reason to provide capital. Once you're beyond a sustainable um, 
once you're beyond a, once you're beyond a, um, a, a sustenance economy where you're growing food, you're eating it, you're trading it, all that stuff. But now you're in a, a multinational economy. And so they turn to the Jews because the Jews weren't Christians. And it's in the Torah that Jews don't have to, can charge interest to, the, to, to non-Jews. So because of this incredibly, as far as I'm concerned, incestuous history of Christianity and Judaism, um, the Jews became the moneylenders in the Holy Roman Empire. And it, I don't need to give you a whole history lesson, right? Of where it goes from there. It's kind of astonishing, isn't it? Um, I think today, Sylvia, and since Roman times, there, since, since the, the Jewish people had to adapt to a much larger economy, the rabbis instituted workarounds for charging interest uh, so that, because the, uh, the economy required it. So I think it is not true any longer that you can't charge interest to other Jewish people. So we have to take that in the spirit um, of, um, let's take that not in the letter of charging interest, but in the spirit at this point of how we give, what our expectations are, what when we say, I gave that to you, you owe me, um, or I gave that to you, I love you. which requires faith that it's not a limited resource that we're dealing with. But in fact, it's a, it's a, it's a upwardly spiraling system. Oh, Ellen, I'm so glad you're finding this, uh, this exciting. That's really wonderful. So, Let's look at the text a little longer. And then I wanna ask you, keep thinking about yourself. And I wanna look at the text a little longer and then I wanna ask, ask questions. If you do this, if you forgive debts, then there shall be no needy among you. Since the Lord your God will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a hereditary portion. <clears throat> and then it says all the good things that are going to happen if you let this free energy flow. And if there's a needy person among you, one of your kinsmen in any of your settlements that the Lord your God is giving you, do not harden your heart or shut your hand against your needy kinsmen. Rather, you must open your hand and lend him sufficient for whatever he needs. And then, of course, bowing to human nature, as the Torah always does, beware, lest you harbor the base thought that the seventh year, the year of remission, is approaching, so that you are mean to your needy kinsman and give him nothing. I would do that. Hey, it's the sixth year. I think I'll lend him, and I think I'll wait a couple of years, right? God, the Torah says, not even. You have to do it. Give to him readily 
and have no regrets when you do so. For in return, the Lord your God will bless you in all your efforts and in all your undertakings. I love that line. Because we can read it as God's the accountant in the sky and is keeping track and you're going to be okay. But I don't want to read it that way. I don't think that's what's trying to be communicated here. I think if yud heh vav is life unfolding, is the engine of life, then if you give without regret, you will become a channel of blessing. It will come back to you. Not the way you necessarily think it should, not in some tit for tat, but you will be blessed. Deborah says, and if I give with love and joy, why would I need anything in return? Perhaps you've already received everything you could possibly need. And maybe that's the blessing that is being offered here. And Barb said, even with our children, we hope they will give back to us, so to speak. But if we expect them to do that, that may lead to us being unhappy. That's exactly what I was thinking about, Barb. I was thinking about my young adult daughters and that it seems to be, for, for me, my job is to let them go. Really, to, to let them go. With, but they know that they can always turn to me for love and support. Um, but that means the outcomes, should I make the outcomes conditional? Some of us, you know, when it's called tough love, some of us have had to do that with our children. That doesn't mean we're being mean. You know, so that's not exactly what I'm talking about. But I am talking about my hopes and expectations for my kids. So the degree that I harbor them, especially unconsciously, it's an impediment to love flowing between me and them. And I am really committed to this because I just want to love them. Um, lot to think about there, isn't it? So, but there will never cease to be needy ones in your land, which is why I command you, open your hand to the poor and needy kinsmen in your land. And then it goes on. If a fellow Hebrew, man or woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year, you shall set him free. And then, okay, he paid off his debt. Time to let him go. He served you. But then there's this incredible instruction. When you set him free, do not let him go empty-handed. Furnish him out of the flock, threshing floor, and vat with which the Lord your God is blessed. So it's not, it's, it's not about a clean slate. Okay, you paid your debt, thanks so long. That's not how this is working. It's something bigger. You have to give them what they need so they can start over again. Why? Zaharta, remember, you were slaves in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Here the word redeem is very important. Paid your price, paid the price to get you out. 
Therefore, I enjoin this commandment upon you today. So deep. So now I'm going to show you the, um, the Leviticus teaching. Let me just get it over here. This should be it. yod spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, when you enter the land that I assign to you, the land shall observe a Sabbath of the Lord. Here the word Shabbat is used instead of Shemitah. Six years you may sow your field, and six years you may prune your vineyard and gather in the yield. But in the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath of complete rest. Sabbath of the Lord, you shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard, nor reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes. A year of complete rest for the land. You may eat whatever the land during its Sabbath will produce. You, your male and female slaves, the hired and bound laborer to live with you, and your cattle and the beasts in your land, the wild beasts. May all eat, may eat all its yield. Now, Rob wrote something that gets to something I wanted to share with you. Rob says, we get a clean slate each year at Yom Kippur, and everyone and everything gets one every seventh year. And Rob, the reason I'm so glad you mentioned that is that Rabbi Seidenberg pointed out that only two times, well, the word Shabbat, we all know. Shabbat is Sabbath, a time of resting, ceasing. But the phrase Shabbat, Shabbaton, in the way the Torah works, when it doubles the word, means like a Sabbath of Sabbaths, which is, what's a good, so here, here it said, oops, I'm sorry. Uh, here it said, Shabbat, um, Shabbaton, a year of complete rest of the land, and in the seventh year, Shabbat, Shabbaton. Well, it turns out the, except for Shabbat itself, which gets referred to as Shabbat, Shabbaton, the only other day that gets referred to as Shabbat, Shabbaton in the Torah is Yom Kippur, which made me have to think there's, there must be a connection between this idea of the sabbatical year and of Yom Kippur, Rob, which you intuitively just nailed. Um, the language of the Torah links Yom Kippur, where we all, all our debts to God are released. All our vows, all our, they're released, and our slate is clean. And we start over again. Is exactly the same concept as the Shabbat Shabbaton, the complete release of the seventh year. Isn't that beautiful? I just learned that today. Um, and before I stop screen sharing, and, and we'll talk a little more. Uh, so it goes on to describe, and we're not going to do this now, that the 49, you count off seven sevens, and 49 years, but oh, we should talk about this. And then, the Shofar Trua, 
you shall sound the shofar aloud. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, Yom HaKippurim, the Day of Atonement, you shall have the shofar sounded throughout your land. And you shall hallow the 50th year, <coughs> which is called the Jubilee. And you shall, and this is the line, you shall proclaim release throughout the land for all its inhabitants. Um, and that is on the Liberty Bell. We've talked about that before. Shall proclaim liberty throughout the land for all its inhabitants thereof. That's where that line comes from. And it shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you shall return to his holding and each of you shall return to his family. This idea of the jubilee year in the 50th year is truly an incredible utopian ideal because not only in the seventh year are you released from debt, but if due to any kind of bad fortune, you have lost your land holding in the course of 50 years, it is returned to you in the 50th year. No one can accumulate wealth in ancient Israel in perpetuity because you get to enjoy, this doesn't mean you don't get to be rich, you get to enjoy it, but in the 50th year, complete restart. Economic and environmental restart. Yes. Yes, Robin. It does remind me of this Statue of Liberty poem. And in that Jubilee year, it's an extra sabbatical. It's very unreasonable to think about it. It's like two years of sabbatical. How do we do this? But you cannot, you must give the land back. And I'm going to hurry up here because it says, the land shall yield its fruit and you shall eat your fill and you shall live upon it in security. And then it says, um, and God says, I promise you'll have enough. But the land cannot be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. You are but strangers resident with me. We are leaseholders, but the owner isn't us. And our lease goes, gives, our lease is over after a certain point. And we begin again. All right. On a personal level, we get to practice what Yom Kippur's goal is, the purpose of Yom Kippur. We get to practice giving each other a clean slate. And as the Torah states, and not just letting someone go empty-handed, but furnishing them as best we're able with what they might need to go forward in their life. And that doesn't just have to be a material or money, monetary. What, what do you need? What blessing do you need from me? Clean slate. Yeah. 
because God's forgiving us. Because the universe is not interested in holding on to a grudge, but rather releasing it whenever possible. So now, whenever I talk about this, it's important to me to say, I am not legislating your life because the, um, the, the timing of the heart and the soul is not something you can actually, right? What arrogance it would be for me to presume that, hey, why don't you just let it go? I mean, how much, how much annoying, terrible advice have you gotten in your life, everybody? Like, I'm not ready yet. Like, forget about it. No. And so for years, I've said, my goal is to lean into the possibility of letting it go rather than hold on to the certainty that it's always going to be this way. So I ask us to, to let drop this coming Shemitah year and lean in to the possibility of letting everybody be. What a glorious feeling that is. Feeling groovy. That's what made me think of <laughs> how it might feel on that day when you're just kicking down the cobblestones. It's not easy. And we have amends we might need to make. We might assess that in order to release this person, there's something we need to say to them. There's something they need to hear. Uh, we might realize that in order to release someone, we need to acknowledge our... O'Donovan wrote... Be not too hard, for life is short, and nothing is given to man. Oh, Donovan. Yes, that was what your poem's about, Joan. It's so much easier from this perspective, says Ellen. Yes, if we can get out of the capitalist economy of relationships and recognize that that's a construct that is is unfortunately sucking everything dry. Then we can revamp our, we can't change the capitalist system per se, but we can create a different conceptual universe for ourselves that the Torah lays out for us. That applies to our inner life, our economic lives, and our relationship to the earth itself. The idea of owning and controlling is a kind of death. And it's not what the Torah instructs us. This is very challenging for me, again, because I'm busy with my IRAs. I'm planning. I know I, I'm, I'm, I'm working it. I need to. I want to make sure I can function in this society. And yet at the same time, how am I going to treat my uh, 
uh, 1.3 acres that my house is on. No, who's, what if I, what, whose land is it? What, what do I, how would I want to relate to it? And um, this, how do I want to relate to the money I want to give away? What do I want to, how do I want to be with all of that? How do I want to be with forgiveness whenever I'm able? How do I want to let my children and my wife live? The land does not belong to you in perpetuity. You are but residents upon it. I think these are the right questions to ask. Um, and I think it's brilliant, um, though, the way that the Torah makes no distinction between what we, what people owe us or think they, we think they owe us and what the land we think owes us, and none of it is true. Um, you know, I've talked about this book a lot. Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. And it's been my guidebook this year. I recommend it without reservation. You can only read like one chapter at a time, and then you have to like cry or soak in the incredible intelligence and beauty of the author. Um, and she reminds us that the Native Americans, her people, the Potawatomi, the place where she lives, which is on the Haudenosaunee Confederacy land of upstate New York, the people from our region, the Mohican and the Leni Lenape, and the, um, that the, none of them had an ownership economy. They had a gratitude economy. They still do. You show your wealth by how much you can give away. You give thanks to the land for everything that's given you. And the same is true if we practice Judaism. Same is true. Our indigenous teachings, even though we're 2,000 years away from them, we carried them with us. We have them. They're not gone. Isn't that incredible? Just like the um, Native American uh, uh, nations that Robin Timmerer describes, who are very much alive. They are keeping their teachings alive. And so did we. And it's still here for us. I'm very moved by that. You know, Larry Bush, my friend Larry Bush, uh, likes to call Judaism countercultural. Um, in its emphases. And I think that's true if we look at its heart. Um, and we need countercultural teachings these days because the, the, the mainstream culture is um, endangering us and our world. So 
as Yom Kippur approaches and Rosh Hashanah and the opportunity that the universe gives us every year in our Jewish understandings to start over. This is also a Shemitah year in the Jewish calendar where we are specifically, explicitly instructed to let everything else start over without indebtedness to us. So I want to I want to bless us to the degree that each of us is able to experience that release and then to offer that spaciousness to our family members to the planet and let our economy be an economy of gratefulness rather than an economy of indebtedness um, where 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 we know that uh, it'll come back and bless us even as it already blesses us as we release our grip That's what I'm working on. Thank you. Good stuff. <laughs>